and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 183, Those Who Can't Teach. With more planes and ships coming online, some being fed into the defense of the American East Coast, the war off the Outer Banks continued. To the southwest of Ogrecoke Island is the Beaufort Inlet, North Carolina, in between Barrier and Cow Islands. On May 9, 1942, the United States Coast Guard cutter Icarus, a Thetis-class cutter, was just south of the Beaufort Inlet, heading for Key West, Florida, when its radar picked up a contact. Maybe. Normally, upon the sonar sending out a clear ping, with nothing large to bounce off of, an echo would be equally clear. But at 4.20 p.m., soundman third class Bill Robich heard, after the ping-ping, a ping-pong about a mile away. Now, this could have been a whale, or it may have been an enemy sub, under a thermocline layer, that is, a large body of water that has a different temperature than the water above and below it. Either way, Robich prudently reported this to the pilot house. The officer on deck, Lieutenant Ed Howard, lifted his binoculars, scanned in the appropriate direction, but saw nothing, and his view was good for nine miles. So he ordered no changes to course. The Icarus went on, powered by its two Winton model diesel engines. Meanwhile, soundman Robich kept up with the mushy contact. It was still there, whatever it was. Then the contact slowed down, but was on a parallel course to the ship, just up ahead. Maybe it was a whale, being wary of the strange object sharing the depths. Suddenly, the mushiness was gone. The ping-ping was clear as a bell, a warning bell. Robich told Howard, and that the contact was now only a mile away. So Howard called the skipper, Lieutenant Maurice Jester, to the bridge. As has happened before, and will happen again, with Jester being 52 years old, the younger men of the crew wondered, but only to each other, if their skipper had the guts to go toe-to-toe with the enemy. What none on board could question was his and their experience, as they had been rather busy since Pearl Harbor. Back in February, the Icarus had come upon a contact near Ambrose Channel, the opening that leads to the ports of New York City and New Jersey. During that possible encounter, the cutter let loose 13 depth charges, and though no telltale signs rose to the surface, Lieutenant Jester reported to his superiors that the sub had been destroyed. Ten days later, the Icarus had helped out with the USS Jacob Jones, which had been pursuing, again, a possible enemy sub. The Jones, as we have seen while looking for survivors of the tanker R.P. Rezor on February 27th, was laywayed by U-578, sending off three torpedoes, of which two hit the Jones. The Icarus got away, and probably nothing was sunk in either instance, but the crew had the attack routine down solid. Between 4.20 and 4.29 p.m., Jester and Lieutenant Howard were trying to figure out what to do next. 
The cutter and the suspected sub were still running parallel, with the American on the right side and the Germans on the left, with the Americans slowly catching up. But any thought of not tipping their hand too soon came at an end at 429. At that moment, an explosion ripped the ocean surface, about 500 yards off the cutter's port quarter. Now, the game was afoot. General quarters was sounded, as clearly the enemy sub had let loose a torpedo. But for whatever reason, it detonated before reaching the American vessel. Jester ordered the Icarus hard to port. Turning left, they started heading the other way, as the skipper wanted to get to the point where the explosion had erupted. Taking the turn, the 165-foot-long cutter was now heading back from where she came. This silent run only lasted for two minutes, because though she was still shy of the disturbed surface, the contact was lost. This was more than just unfortunate. With the sub invisible, it was now free to launch an attack unencumbered, and Jester knew why contact had been lost, as they had closed in on the bubbling surface. That very disturbance was playing hell with his sonar. There was only one thing for it. Jester was about to order depth charges, but the question was, was the sub holding still, and if not, which direction away from the bubbles was it heading? But the middle-aged skipper had an answer already. He ordered a diamond pattern that of five depth charges to be released, one for each corner, and in case the sub was sedentary, one in the middle. As the five explosions went off, the men in the cutter's diesel room felt their world shake and then shake again. Five times, to be exact. And they were guessing if the Germans were any closer to one of those blasts than they were, it would not be good for them. Just in case the enemy below survived, and just to increase the cutter's chances of survival, Jester ordered another 180-degree turn. Meanwhile, his crew, who manned the various guns topside, looked out over the waves, ready to blast anything that rose to the surface. With the second turn, Jester had his ship approaching again the first mysterious explosion. Five minutes went by. Silence. Then another five minutes. Nothing. Then it seemed as if another five minutes would go by when suddenly, just shy of where the sub had been picked up originally, it was picked up again by sonar. The enemy was moving slowly to the west. But now the Icarus was locked onto their target. Each ping received a clear responding ping. Ping, 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 ping now over the target, which just happened to be the spot of the first explosion, the cutter released three more depth charges. The American skipper found himself in a quandary. The bottom below them was only 120 feet away, not enough room to hide a sub. But where was she? Now that explosions were rocking the depths, the sub disappeared from the sonar screen again. Jester had the ship turn around for a third time. It was his best chance, it seemed. An additional lone depth charge was released. Gradually, the water's surface calmed down again, and as much as the crewmen strained their eyes, no signs of a hit were detected, like oil, debris, and certainly no limping submarine. 
Some would say that Jester chose this moment to throw out the book, that is, a set of countermaneuvers established by the Coast Guard or Navy. With things quiet all around, the skipper ordered one more depth charge to be launched, but wanted it sent down just to the right of the latest air bubbles that had broken the surface. A minute later, at 5.09 p.m., a U-boat, clearly damaged, pushed through to the surface. This last depth charge had forced it upward. Now that Jester had what he wanted, he ordered another comeabout and charged at the luckless sub. When the Icarus was 1,000 yards away, the ship's six machine guns opened up, as did the three-inch gun. The gun's first shell fell short, but it skipped across the waves, slamming into the conning tower. The next shot went over the sub, probably because the cutter was getting closer and the gun team had not compensated. The third shell was true, as were five more shells afterwards. But it was the bullets and shells slamming into the sub that caused the sub crew from departing their vessel as much as they wanted to. Still, as the Icarus came closer, it could see submariners jumping into the waves and swimming away from the surely doomed sub. Upon seeing this, the skipper ordered a ceasefire, but the actual stoppage of firing took a few minutes. The cutter might have sunk two subs before this moment, or not, but this was altogether different, and the men were thrilled to finally be striking back at an enemy they could see. Now that the Americans were not raining lead down on the conning tower, the German crewmen continued jumping ship. But now, the race was on. Clearly, the sub was going to resubmerge. But as the conning tower hatch was still open, water would pour through, speeding up the process. As it was, the men jumped and swam away, but the sub began to lower itself back under the waves. In the end, 12 crewmen did not get out in time. They were probably on or near the ladder, but the water, now pouring in, pushed them down, deeper into the body of the sub, as it went deeper into the sea. It seemed that the threat was no more, but when air bubbles were seen popping up on the surface, which could have indicated the sub was rising, Jester dropped one more depth charge. And this did the trick, as diesel oil could be seen coming to the surface. Now that the danger had truly passed to the Icarus, the question that remained was what to do with the enemy crewmen floating out on the wave tops. There were 33 of them. However, a decision had to be made fast, as the current was pushing the men to the northeast, but also spreading them out. It was here and this should not be too surprising, that the Coast Guard regulations did not cover what to do next. Head home, job well done, or save the enemy combatants. So a message requesting guidance was sent to the 5th Naval District Headquarters at Norfolk, Virginia. But 12 minutes went by with only silence. So the same question was sent to the 6th District Headquarters at Charleston, South Carolina. More silence. As the crew of the Icarus watched, the Germans were being spread further out and further away from each other, making an eventual rescue that much harder should they be given permission. Despite that, the radio 
stayed quiet. Jester started to pace, torn between fear of the Germans, a cutter wasn't exactly set up to house dozens of prisoners, or let the men be eaten by sharks, something that all who go to sea dread most. Not until 5.50 p.m., the sub had first broken the surface at 5.09, did the cutter receive a message which read, Icarus, pick up survivors, bring to Charleston. The why of this delay has never been answered, and considering that naval intelligence was consulted before a response was sent out, it probably never will be. With the order given, the Icarus lowered down its two lifeboats and started the process of gathering the stricken men. At 6.05 p.m., the Icarus turned and headed for the South Carolina coast. With that, Captain Lieutenant Helmut Rothka stepped forward. He was polite, and yet not polite. When it came to answering personal questions, he smiled. He was all charm. But... Whenever the subject turned professional, he was close-lipped and, at the same time, condescending. In time, naval intelligence would find, as they gathered more submarine POWs, that the majority of the crewmen fought for the fatherland, not Hitler. That, however, was not the case with the men of U-352. They believed that de Fuhrer was a genius who would lead Germany to greatness and they all carried the arrogance and self-assuredness that comes with youth. The average age of the crew was 22. Then the skipper, Jester, made his first mistake. But first, the lead cutter officer found that for all of the shooting his men had done as the sub went down, only four of the Germans were injured. Clearly, practice was needed. But one submariner had lost a leg, and he would die that night due to complications. The mistake was when Jester put all of his guests in the forward crew compartment, officers and enlisted men. Hence, Roth was able to give them clear instructions on not divulging information to their captors. At 11.30 a.m. the next morning, the Icarus pulled into Charleston Harbor. As the POWs disembarked, according to rank, as is proper, Captain Rothk shook Jester's hand, thanking him for the decent treatment. As the Germans marched to a temporary holding facility, the Icarus's crew, along with everyone else lucky enough to be in the vicinity at the moment to see them depart, could not help but contrast the almost demon-like propaganda of Goebbels with these clean-cut, very disciplined, very young men who walked by. The collective thought of the Americans was, they are only human, after all. First, the Navy's anti-submarine warfare unit got a crack at the Germans, putting questions to them, sometimes politely, sometimes not. But Roth's words were still ringing in their ears. Little to no information was forthcoming. So, they were passed over to the U.S. Marines Provost Marshal, who took them to a permanent detention camp at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, one state up from their current location. The questioning continued at Fort Bragg, now being conducted by officers of the Foreign Section of the Office of Naval Intelligence. With them was a representative of the British Royal Navy, who had, 
questioned German POWs previously. This questioning went on for three months. Afterward, some of the Germans were sent to Fort Hunt in Fairfax County, Virginia, which was now an ultra-secret military intelligence facility for this specific purpose, the questioning of POWs. But countering this, Roth had those same three months to remind his crew not to give any information that might help the enemy combat other German subs. And yet, by questioning the Germans over and over, cross-checking the latest answers with previous ones, and then taking the time to drill down into a response that seemed to lead somewhere, some information was obtained. First, it was the Germans' version of what happened when they lost their sub. One of the first depth charges destroyed the periscope and killed an officer in the conning tower. This frightened the younger men. Equally important, the smashed gauges made operating the sub that much harder for countermeasures. Then all of the lights, other than the emergency lights, went out. Clearly, the electric motors were shut down, limiting what could be done. Next, though Rothk was professional and a bit condescending, this arrogance was not exactly warranted by his war record. The sub-commander believed that about 60 depth charges had been dropped around him. The real number was 11. Perhaps he was trying to lie to show what it took to defeat a German sub, or how gallant he had been as commander. But it seems that the sandy floor that wasn't that deep made the Germans think that more explosions took place than what actually did. The next bit of information, not that Rath realized what he was giving away, was when, after his torpedo failed to hit the Icarus and instead went straight down before exploding, the German officer did hide in that very stirred-up sand and mud. This was actually quite clever, until it wasn't. For when the disturbance rose to the surface, that gave Jester a good starting point for his subsequent attacks. Hence, Rothk had outfoxed himself. Almost feeling sorry for the Germans, almost, the conversation switched to what did Rothk think of the Third Reich's allies, the Japanese and Italians, but this was mostly just to let the man talk. A part of the report that went to Admiral Ernest J. King at the end of August in 1942, read, U-352 seems to have arrived in American waters about May 2nd, a week before her destruction. Misfortune plagued her. She sank nothing. When on the surface, looks out had to be put on alert constantly for aircraft. They crashed-dived several times to elude patrol planes. And it was this part of the report that made the chest of Admiral Andrews, the commander of the Eastern Frontier, swell with pride. However, the next part froze Andrews' blood. The Germans had specifically gone to Cape Lookout, about 35 miles southwest of Ocracoke Island, to await a convoy. Why wait for it to gather further up north with escorts? Which meant that... Had the Icarus not sunk U-352, she might have indeed come upon the first coastal convoy of the war, which sailed past that area just a few days later. 
postscript. Only after the war would naval intelligence figure out that with Rothk, the Americans had gotten lucky. Rothk was a member of the naval officers' class of 1930. Later, he would be a professor as the course leader of the Torpedo School from May 1939 to June 1940. Then he did some time as a staff officer at the Naval Command Station in Calais until October, then back to the Torpedo School until April of 1941. From April to July, Rothk was in a U-boat training school, and when done, was strangely given command of U-352, that is, without undertaking a training cruise. It seems that he and perhaps Admiral Donitz was hoping that his Nazi zeal, rather than hands-on experience, would lead him to make smart decisions. They were wrong. 